Welcome to the WPS Remix Edition of the Plastic Surgery Hot Seat Podcast, presented by the ASPS Women Plastic Surgeons Forum. I'm Dr. Paige Myers, Clinical Assistant Professor at the University of Michigan, and I'm excited to share the latest pearls and pitfalls in aesthetic and reconstructive breast, body, and facial surgery straight from the WPS Symposium. Hello, I'm Emily Hu. I'm a solo private plastic surgeon uh, near Portland, Oregon. And today I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Christy Hustack of the uh, Aesthetic Center for Plastic Surgery in Houston, Texas. And she's going to discuss her talk today on the new abdominal plasty tips to maximize outcomes. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Who, for having me today. We just had an awesome, lively discussion at the Women's Plastic Surgery Symposium. Um, lots of good questions and lots of good pearls. So it's, it's a really a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm in private practice in Houston, Texas. I'm in a larger group setting. Um, there's seven of us with a couple aesthetic fellows, and we're aesthetic only. So, um, you know, we just concentrate kind of on that cosmetic cash pay patient. Uh, we have our own private surgical center and our own staff. So I think that makes it a little bit more uh, flexible in doing some of these uh, procedures because we're our own boss. So we can we can decide what equipment to buy and what to do, which is a little bit more freeing than some university practices, of course. That's very nice. Yes. So today um, I did a little bit of a talk on the new abdominoplasty. And, you know, really, I don't necessarily know this is new. It's just revisiting or refining uh, current techniques that we already know and do. But how can we, you know, really elevate our abdominoplasty outcomes? Because um, that's the idea of it, right? You know, how can we take a good tummy tuck to a great one? Um, and there's, you know, small nuances. Same thing with breasts. You know, how do you make, you know, a, a standard breast dog, a great breast dog? And sometimes it's that one extra millimeter of dissection, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, so for the tummy tuck for me that's adding liposuction mm -hmm. you know what can liposuction do for contour um, in a safe environment of course because we certainly don't want to do anything that's not safe but um, we can really get some really beautiful contours by combining liposuction uh, both to the flap itself as well as the trunk and really balance that um, I tell my patients all the time I want you to look just as good coming as going mm -hmm. and so by adding that posterior trunk liposuction it really balances their, their their whole physique where they believe it or not look less operated on sometimes a yeah. super, yeah, a super flat amorphous, you know, not amorphous, but a super flat, beautiful tummy tuck with a lot of bra line um, or posterior fullness posterior just looks fullness. unnatural, yeah. you know? And so you're like, oh, you had a tummy tuck. Or sometimes <laughs> if you all that, you're like, oh my God, are you working out? You look great. Right. So, yeah. you know, so that's kind of the concept I want for most of my patients. I want them, and that's really any surgery I do, and everybody has a different philosophy, but I want them, I want their friends to say, gosh, you look so good. Mm -hmm. You know, are you working out more? What are you nutrition-wise? Oh my gosh, are you on a new antioxidant? What are you doing for your skin? <laughs> You know, I want those questions, right. not who's your plastic who's your surgeon, plastic you know. But so yeah, why. you did a nice job. You showed the difference in the posterior view, like you said, looking good, leaving um, on an unliposuctioned back. Beautiful front result with the tummy tuck, but the back not being touched. And it is now disproportionate. So now the front is nice and smooth. Proportionately, now the back flank looks bigger and not good. So you're already kind of pre-anticipating uh, that, educating the patients, and then making that part of your surgical plan. Which no, is great. absolutely. And you know, once I have my liposuction cannula out, I mean, it's pretty rare that I'm only doing one small area. So it is more common that I'm doing the whole back, for example, for the same trunk aesthetic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, certainly as you move into, you know, other areas, um, that's different. But whenever I look at a breast, I'm always looking at the axilla and the bra line absolutely. and adding liposuctionless regions for that exact same concept. That's the ladies always bring up their side 
The side boob. Yeah. Exactly. And, yeah. you know, honestly, in some women, their side boob is just as big as a regular exactly. boob. So if you don't address it, you know, it almost exaggerates some of that sometimes. So, yeah. So I think adding liposuction is a quick, you know, easy way. It's a tool in our toolbox we use anyways. Mm -hmm. So why not combine it in, in a safe fashion to the deep plane and really get some improved aesthetic outcomes? Yeah. And I've also found after tummy tucks, you know, they're so happy with their front. They're starting to wear tighter, smaller pants. But then what happens is if you haven't done liposuction, that tight waistband makes the bulge bulge. Yeah. You know, great point. So great point. That's, again, you're pre-anticipating and addressing that. And so your patient satisfaction is going to be great. Absolutely. Uh, you touched a little bit on your um, prep and your standing prep and mm -hmm. your uh, lateral to lateral and how that really helps with that. Can you touch a little yeah. bit? Yeah. I mean, I think one of, there's kind of a couple barriers I hear in people wanting to start to integrate this approach. One of them is safety. They're really freaked out about it. They weren't trying to do it. Oh my gosh, you know, I'm going to kill the blood supply. Um, but the second one is just time and speed and pushback from your ORs, mm -hmm. um, you know, because it's it's cumbersome. I mean, that can add an extra hour to your case if you have to go spine prone, spine again. Yeah. Um, and so I think the way we get around that is by doing a standing preparation. Mm -hmm. So they um, bathe in chlorhexidine scrub. We give it to them in their package the night before. The morning of, they come and they wipe down with wipes. And then we stand and prep them with chlorhexidine um, before they get on the operating room table. And so I think um, that allows us then to turn them side to side with a sterile towel. We're not re-prepping in between those. It speeds you up. A time saver, um, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a major time saver. Um, and anesthesiologists love it because they're not having to go prone. So mm -hmm. that's great too. Yeah. And then from a post-operative standpoint, a couple tricks you can do with that is um, really integrating lymphatic massages. Um, I know it's a little bit of a social media fad to some degree, but quite frankly, with aggressive liposuction, it does make a major difference. Mm -hmm. Patients will talk about that water weight pretty consistently, especially with progressive tension sutures. You know, one of the benefits to drains is that it pulls out that fluid so it's not integrated in your sub-Q and you have to mobilize it, get into your kidneys and, and pee it out. Right. Um, and so one adjunct to that without using drains is to do those lymphatic massages um, and patients tell you it feels good it really smooths out your it results feel so heavy it doesn't feel so heavy they don't feel like a stuffed sausage you know it's hard enough to recover and right. so you know and it, it, it feels great so um, I think it's one of those things that we it's not a must you know certainly people will recover just fine without it but it is part of our what we call quick recovery protocol so you just recover a little bit quicker um, you know by, by pulling that fluid out yep. a, a little more expeditiously so your kidneys aren't overwhelmed it makes their experience better too absolutely right? it kind of leads to that boutique experience absolutely and it and, gives them something that they feel like that they can do to help speed uh -huh. along their healing and process oh yes my doctor loved me so much that she recommended these lymphatic massages <laughs> so there you go yeah well you also um i think it was good to see that you know although you do progressive progressive tension sutures that if you have a certain amount of liposuction you've done you still leave a drain in i think some people I think it's kind of all or nothing if they do the progressive tension suture, then they don't leave a drain, but it sounds like sometimes you still do. Yes. Well, you know, we get this question a lot from patients because it's kind of, again, perpetuated on social media. Mm -hmm. People come in and freak out like, why are you not lose, leaving a drain? Oh my gosh, I've read mm -hmm. you have to have a drain. Some of that is by your energy devices. The Vaser liposuction, for example, makes so much fluid, fluid you have to leave a drain. So I'm not using that, um, but certainly when I use, you know, a lot of liposuction to mess up fluids, it's got to go somewhere. So if it's not leaking out of my 
access sites, which over the two days close, um, and then it's got to stay in your subcutaneous tissue and you've got to mobilize it. Right. Um, and so that's really where, you know, I say, hey, if it's over five, you know, over really three liters in my hands, mm-hmm. uh, I'm leaving a drain. They come out at, between day three and five. It is not it's that not long. Super long. They're still yeah. in that recovery phase. It's their first visit with me. They're still in their cut. Yeah, <laughs> and I take it out. I use one, I um, and I take it out of the month pubis, so it comes out of the compression dressing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really not too cumbersome, and they don't see the scar because it's in the hair barrier region. Right. Well, and it, your comment on social media, I think that does drive a lot of initial questions by the patient, but again, spending the time explaining right. behind the whys, the do's and don'ts, I find patients are very open to the education and then they're yeah, understanding. Absolutely. I think they appreciate it when you educate. This is why I do it. And right. Some of them do better with just knowledge. You know, yeah. other ones, you kind of got to tell them, that, you know, this this is just what's going to get done. But some of them do great with education. I think as a female plastic surgeon, we tend to get those patients that want more education. More education. Right? They're, you know, they, they want a little bit more of that knowledge and be a participant with you, mm-hmm. not being dictated their care. So yeah. I think there's probably something to that as I well. I think there is. Well, thank you very much for your time, uh, Dr. Hustack. It's been wonderful hearing your tips and tricks. Today, I am joined by Dr. Marianne Contagianis in Greensboro, North Carolina, with loads of experience um, in surgery, but really comes today to give us her insight and experience on using non-surgical devices for body contouring. Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for having me, Dr. Hughes. You know, it was a great panel. I will say, I think the WPS meetings have really evolved into nice meetings for women to come and to share with each other Mm -hmm. and to know that you can share and it's appreciated and it's confidential and it's just, you can be yourself. Yeah. So today you talked about your experience with a non-surgical device in your practice. Sounds like um, you um, looked into this device uh, back as early as 2018. So you were already Mm kind of ahead of the curve um, on body contouring non-surgically. Can you comment a little bit on the ASPS statistics you brought up during the converse, uh, the presentation? Yes. Um, you know, it's, it was really interesting. In 2020, for the first time, breast augmentation got knocked off as yeah. the top proce- surgical procedure. Everything that would happen. I know. It's just amazing. And, um, and it, it was like number four or five, mm-hmm. which is, um, but instead you had things like rhinoplasty. Mm-hmm. You had things like facelift Facelifts. moving up. Mm-hmm. You know, on the non-surgical side, it was pretty, it was pretty stable. Steady. It was Botox, Botox fillers, fillers, chemical pills, IPL, IPL. etc. Mm-hmm. And then when you look at 2021, it's knocking at the door again mm-hmm. to be number one, but liposuction was number one. Mm-hmm. And breast augmentation was number two. The other procedures had dropped down, right. you know, mastopexy, liposuction, et cetera, abdominoplasty, they had dropped down. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the, the non-surgical side, it was still, Botox was number one, but different Botox products, filler products mm-hmm. were there. We had uh, different chemical peels. Mm-hmm. We had different um, laser treatments like IPL, mm-hmm. et cetera. You know, um, and then you get down to skin tightening mm-hmm. was the number six on that. And um, part of that, a lot of people feel was due to the, what we call the Zoom boom, right? We were all on Zoom meetings, us included, mm-hmm. during that time because of all the stay-at-home orders. Right. I think they said in 2020, plastic surgery practices or medical practices were closed for an average of 8.1 weeks. Right. That's, That's 15% of our schedule for the year. And so people were looking at themselves. They were saying, oh my God, I don't like the way my face looks, my nasolabial folds. But they were saving money too, because they were at home and not spending. 
That's right. So the whole so, other world became open to them. Yeah, and they were wearing masks, right? We were all wearing masks. So they started to dabble with having more procedures. And we as plastic surgeons saw that there were a lot of non-surgical as well as after that surgical procedures that were increasing. And it was about the time, like I said, in 2018 is when I started paying attention to all of this because it was a slow creep to the skin tightening procedures and minimally invasive techniques. And, you know, the hard part is we have people that walk in the door that say, you know what, I know I've had a couple of kids. I know I've got this loose skin. Mm -hmm. I've got a little bit of fat there, but golly, I don't want that abdominal plastic scar. I don't scar. want surgery. I don't or, want that scar. I'm I don't scared. want that facelift scar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I don't want that scar on my arms and all. And they're scared. They want something done, but they just don't want the scar associated with surgery. Um, they don't want to necessarily go through the mega recovery from surgery, go under <clears throat> anesthesia. They're very scared. And so we have an option for them now. Yes, I do. And you're 100% correct. That's what they're asking for. And, you know, as I said, if they don't, if I don't provide it for them, they'll go to somebody else who may not be a plastic surgeon. And I think we should take control of the procedures. Absolutely. I think it's in our purview to do that. Yeah. And so I started looking at it. And for me, I, I decided that I really wanted to go with um, technologies that I could build upon mm -hmm. and uh, that I could easily perform. I am fortunate. I do have an OR in my office. I'm fully accredited um, in the process of expanding my medical spa again. I had contracted it during COVID. So mm -hmm. now I'm getting ready to expand it again. Great. And so some of these procedures, yes, do need some uh, light anesthesia, but some of them I could do under oral sedation or no sedation, depending mm -hmm. on the patient. Depends on the patient. So I added a lot of the um, radio frequency devices, um, high energy, and some of them will penetrate both beneath the skin to deliver the heat energy as well as on top of the skin. So they coat the entire thickness of the dermis and can penetrate as deep as eight millimeters on the body as deep wow. as four to five millimeters on the face nice. and that neck, that beautiful neck, right? Mm -hmm. That people hate, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, but if you have a thick neck, those are the people that you could go all the way down to four on wow. for the face on different levels. Four millimeters mm -hmm. is what we're talking about. And so it has really opened up a whole nother group of patients to me, you know, what we call the gap patients, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That have some issues, but not enough to really want surgery. Right. And I really have expanded upon that. I, what's important though, is I got the right training for it. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think that's huge, very huge. Mm -hmm. um, I look for companies that only sold to physicians. Right. They Thank don't, much. they won't sell to estheticians, PAs, nurse practitioners. Now it is up to the physician though, once you buy the technology and get trained on it to decide mm -hmm. who are you going to have do it in your office. And it's okay to, mm -hmm. to delegate some of it. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, I'm not going to delegate right now. I'm not delegating, but I'm considering maybe delegating some of it in the future. Right. But um, I think that's helpful that you've had now four years of experience of using the machine, knowing its limits, knowing where it can get a little scary, knowing where to back off, um, because now you can set boundaries and parameters for whoever you do delegate to uh, versus just bringing on the machine and then having someone go train. You didn't, you don't have that knowledge, but you have a lot of knowledge of the machine and what it can do and what you should expect from it now. Yes, you're correct. And it was a learning curve for me. There's no question, especially that first year, it was a huge learning curve for me, but I do feel very comfortable with those procedures. And even, you know, especially when you start delegating, people have got to think about, these are heat energy devices. You've got to think about the Fitzpatrick skin types. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And the depth of the tissue 
So for me, when I'm going to train someone, it's not going to be a weekend course. It's going to be like a, a four month course, four right? Months, yeah, yeah. In my office, doing with procedures you. with me, we're going to do it together. And then I'm going to observe them doing it alone before I would allow them to do it on their own because of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that a lot of that is your surgical training, mm -hmm. right? Where you are, you know, basically mentoring and monitoring someone before letting them go. And I think patients, you know, really appreciate your goal for the patient safety and that you're taking that into consideration mm -hmm. for them. Yeah. Yes, I think so. Um, and, uh, you know, five years from now, this technology may change, right? Uh, I will stay abreast of it. And mm -hmm. That's a little bit of a risk. I'm in solo private practice, so it's not inexpensive right. to, to purchase the technologies. Yeah. But you do look at it and decide what's right for you and your practice. And your and, patients. And my patients, absolutely. And the other thing is I've had to reset my thermostat a little bit as to what I think is an acceptable result sometimes mm, right, right. because I know what I could do with the tummy tuck. But you know what? Surgically, I know what I can do. But if I can do a nice liposuction, use the radio frequency heat energies, mm -hmm. tighten that skin to their satisfaction, I think we have to start accepting some of that. That's absolutely true. Yeah. And so I think that's where you're showing examples where, you know, maybe surgically you knew you could do better, but the patient was so happy they got the result they got without having surgery. Right. And some of these, the technologies that I chose, I can use on the face, mm -hmm. the neck. I Very can modular. Use, yeah. Exactly. I can use on the body. I can use on the breast, both a man and a woman, mm -hmm. to tighten things. Some of the gynecomastia cases that I've combined with liposuction yeah. have been great. Right. It avoids huge scars on someone who normally say he's almost got like a female breast on him, right? Mm -hmm. But you can contract that skin as well as do the aggressive liposuction. And so it's opened up a whole new... Um, avenue of patience for me as well. Well, I like yeah. how you, you commented it's uh, one company and uh, then you develop a relationship with them, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think that is important. And sometimes with different devices, different companies, different reps, it can get just a little confusing. And so it's better to kind of have that more close-knit relationship, you know, with your with your rep for this. So it is a really good example. It is from many aspects. Um, and also when you look at being cost-conscious, if you are with a company and they know that you use their products and you're going to continue right. to use, they will Maybe take that breaks. into consideration in the pricing. Yeah. You know, um, loyalty pricing. <laughs> exactly. And they're not just a one hit wonder, as I call them. You know, you, they have one product that you like, then you got to move, like you said, move to the next company. Mm -hmm. Typical for my staff. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's easy to have one company you order all your supplies from, et cetera, that are reasonable yeah. and everything. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been wonderful hearing your experience and uh, for you to share that with us. We really appreciate it. And I am just so excited to introduce to you Dr. Camille Cash, a solo private practice aesthetics only surgeon in Houston, Texas, the first female African-American plastic surgeon in Houston, Texas, in all of the state of Texas as well. So uh, what an honor and just to, to meet a superstar in person <laughs> and hear her tips and tricks, so excited. So today she's gonna talk about her uh, experience of using mesh and ADMs in aesthetic breast surgery. So uh, Dr. Cash, you presented earlier, wonderful stories of kind of how you evolved, what you started with using and why, and then what you've evolved to now. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I initially started my practice in 2002. 
I went to the Atlanta Breast Symposium in 2005, heard Dr. Scott Spear speak, and he talked about using ADM for breast reconstruction, mm -hmm. especially in tissue expanders where we were historically putting them underneath the muscle, a total submuscular coverage, and the implants were high riding, and then you had these high implants, especially if you had a contralateral breast that was relaxed and, and maybe a little bit more uh, tautic, mm -hmm. it was a total mismatch or it was retracted and it didn't look very good. So the ADMs allowed us to put it subpectoral. Uh, ADMs allowed us to put the implants um, subpectoral and then use the ADM inferiorly to create that fold and to also provide a layer of protection, protection. of the implant mm -hmm. um, after a mastectomy in case your mastectomy flaps were maybe thin or had a little compromise in healing. So I started with reconstruction and I was becoming very comfortable with the use of cadaveric ADMs for breast reconstructions with tissue expanders. Mm -hmm. And at the time of my um, reconstruction days, I would find that during my my surgeries, I would try to expand the I would expand the tissue expanders to the max that their skin flaps would allow, because it was easier for patients. It was like they were almost finished almost with the ex done. expansion mm -hmm. process and they didn't have to come back to the office multiple times, which was uncomfortable and painful. And psychologically and when they wake up and they look right. down and come in thinking they're just going to be deformed or super flat and then they look down and think, oh my goodness, I actually have something there. So that, that was a, nice. another benefit for, for that. So as then we developed um, or porcine-derived mm -hmm. ADMs were developed. They were a little bit less stretchy than the cadaveric. Right. And they were a little bit less expensive in terms of the um, the cost yes. to patients, insurance companies, etc. Mm -hmm. And so then I started doing direct implant reconstruction because what's even better than you wake up and you're done. done. Mm -hmm. And so using that Porcine uh, derived ADM allowed me to put the implant in, set the fold. It was less flexible than the cadaveric, so kind of where you put put it, it stayed there. So it was really beautiful, and that allowed me then to start thinking about okay, aesthetic cases. And my early aesthetic cases were all revisions because nobody really wanted to pay for an ADM for a primary breast off. We saved it for the um, for salvage cases. Right. So I started using small pieces for my um, revision aesthetic cases. I explained to the patients this is how much it's going to cost, etc. Mm -hmm. But really was able to get some nice results in terms of you know repairing um, folds uh, that had been disrupted for patients that had some somastia. Or lateralization of the implants, you can use this uh, piece of porcine ADM to create that. And then, of course, we developed, started um, developing different meshes that were mm -hmm. made out of different materials. Right. And some of and some of the meshes were exciting, some not so much. And I was I'm very slow to adopt new things that go next to my implants mm -hmm. because during the course of my reconstructive days, I was forced by the hospital sometimes to use. Um, some alternate products that were not my first choice. It happened to me too. Yeah. And it was, and you know, and that, it's, just, yeah. it's annoying because annoying, yeah. you're the physician, you have experience, you want the best outcome for your patients. And there were, I think, at least three occasions where, and it's like, it's like 100% when I was forced to use something I didn't like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I didn't get the same outcome. Mm -hmm. So that's like 100% disaster. disaster. So then you're, then you're either losing the implant or you're revising the implant, and that's more expensive than if you just go with the your first choice, choice. in ADM. Mm -hmm. So I was very reluctant to start using different meshes 
Um, I would give the option to my patients. It's a little, the mesh is a little bit less Less expensive. expensive. Mm -hmm. So it's an option to save money. And for a while I would present it and patients like, I'll just stick with pigskin since you're familiar with porcine derived ADMs. Right. right. So I was fine. And eventually I got, I I got a taker, um, (laughs) you know, and I was like, and I was very upfront. I was like, this is, you are my first patient. So we're going to just give this a, you know, a world. And I found that, um, the P4HB mesh is, it comes into a lot of different configurations. Mm-hmm. It is unforgiving. So where you put it is where you it where stays, it stays yeah. right? It doesn't move. It doesn't, it doesn't move at all. It's not a lot of forgiveness, which can be good and bad, but you have to know that going into it. Um, the P4HB has multiple configurations, so it's a flat sheet. It also comes in a curved device with a rim that makes it easier to sew to, or one without a rim that has tabs, so different um, different selections. I've used the rim device once. I will not use it again without removing the rim because that was one patient that could feel the edge. edge. And I was saying, it's going to go away. It's going to go away. It's going to go away. (laughs) And like at 18 months, it was still there. And they're like, well, for hex, when's this going to go away? And I went back and trimmed out the, the, you could Mm -hmm. see it, you could trim Mm -hmm. out the the rim. I'm like, you know, so never again with that. So I typically use the sheet version of the P4HB because I'm used to using it with the, um, with the ADMs. Mm -hmm. And so I, um, I like that. I I think that it's sometimes, again, a little rigid, unforgiving. Mm -hmm. And it's not cheap. None of these are cheap. Yeah, none of these are. It's not necessarily that much cheaper. It's not like a bargain, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's just a little bit less, it's less expensive. So then the PDO mesh um, has been on the market for about 18 months. FDA approved, and it is, it's easier to work with than mm. the P4HB. Okay. But my concern or my question is longevity. longevity. How long will this really hold and how long will it really last? And time will, 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 will show. But for me, the gold standard for, for my aesthetic breast soft tissue support is still a porcine ADM. Mm. Unfortunately, it's expensive. Mm. And it's also also requires the use of drains. drains. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, in, uh, indications for using the different materials for soft tissue support, and it's it's fun to kind of use them. I have used them on top of each other. Oh, that's a question we get a lot, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I have gone, revision yeah, revision cases. I have done porcine ADM and then come back and put mesh in because I'm kind of like, well, if the porcine didn't hold up, mm-hmm. maybe I need um, usually the P4HB because I go, that's more of a rigid hold mm-hmm. and I'll try that. Um, I have not, and I've gone back and done porcine ADM on top of porcine ADM. Oh, okay. You know, I've ha- I've done that before. And really, you know, for my, for my ADMs, I really, when I, you know, with the Cadaveric, you know, we would always go back for the tissue expanders. Right. Yep. And really, I would, it was lovely to see the incorporation. incorporation. Um, I would occasionally go back for the porcine, but you don't see it like we used to see the cadaveric. Right. So you're kind of like, if it looks good, then it must be working. Must be working. Um, and we don't always go back unless it's revision. But I have stacked different materials on top of other materials. Well, I think one thing you brought up is is nice is that you have a real honest conversation with the patient i.e. this is the first time I'm using it. I have a lot of experience using some sort of soft tissue support, but this particular type and, and 
brand or product is new. Um, so you're very honest with them. And then you are also honest, like, well, you know, the jury's still out on longevity. Right. And so you're kind of putting that in there already where, you know, let's just follow you. And, and if for some reason it still bottoms out or is a problem, it's not a surprise to the patient. It's not a surprise to you. So just having that honesty with them up front, I think is huge. Yeah. No, definitely because it just prepares patients for the journey ahead. Yeah, this is definitely a journey. Yeah. So, well, I'm glad to be on this journey with Dr. Oh, Camille Cash. Love seeing her. So excited. That was a hug. You couldn't see it, but we hugged. <laughs> yes, it's great to be here. We hope you've enjoyed today's uh, podcast with Women Plastic Surgeons Symposium. We're having a blast here in Charleston, uh, South Carolina, and we're looking forward to the next one in New Mexico next yeah. year. Yeah, it's good. Thank you for listening to the WPS Remix Edition of the Plastic Surgery Hot Seat Podcast brought to you by the ASPS Women Plastic Surgeons Forum. We hope you found our coverage of the WPS Symposium informative and engaging. Remember to subscribe to our podcast, check out our other episodes on your preferred platform, or download them directly from ASPS EdNet. Stay tuned for more insightful conversations and expert advice to help you navigate the latest trends and challenges in plastic surgery.